0: Welcome everyone and happy Valentine's Day. Welcome to the February 2022 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limer Education and ESO for making this possible. And the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum is dedicated to the promotion, education, and dissemination of pre-hospital research. And we believe it is the responsibility of emergency medical professionals worldwide to build a body of evidence to examine pre-hospital emergency care. And so here on the PCRF Journal Club, we're going to take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in EMS. I'm Remly Crow, and I am joined today by Dave Page, Dr. Tony Fernandez, Jeff Rollman, and Dr. Bill Toon. And it is my great pleasure to welcome first author of our paper today, Dr. Ginny Rinkowitz, so welcome. As a reminder to everyone, the name of the article that we'll be reviewing is Secondary Traumatic Stress in Emergency Services Systems Stress Project, Quantifying and Predicting Compassion Fatigue in Emergency Medical Services Personnel, and this was just published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. As always, our discussion is paired with an article written by our very own columnist, Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. So we encourage you all to check it out at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. I wanna thank the audience for joining us today. And before we begin, let me just remind you that you can use the chat feature on your screen at any time to type in questions and comments, and we'll be bringing those into the live conversation as we go. And so with that, let's dive in. Dr. Renkowitz, welcome. Um, for our audience who may not know you and all of your wonderful work just yet, I figured we could start off with a little bit of an introduction. Would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and how you got interested in EMS research?
1: Well, I, well, hello everyone. First of all, thank you guys for having me. Um, it's, it's so very awesome to be here. Um, I think that my interest in research is partly Dave Page's fault. And <laughs> then the rest right. of that- <laughs> falls on Dr. Michael Hubble. Um, we did a PCRF research, uh, forum and our state EMS conference, uh, about 10 years ago. And, um, you know, we were baby researchers then. <laughs> and so, you know, we're up at three o'clock in the morning running our own stats and, uh, you know i had no idea what i was doing i was a first semester grad student you know i I kind of knew how to run the test but i had no idea how to interpret anything that i was seeing so you know it's three in the morning we're all hyped up on coffee and i turned to dr Mike couple and i said what does this mean and he tells me this is very little cool factoid and i realized that he and i were the only people on earth who knew that little tidbit of information and from there i was completely hooked um, We've now kind of developed our own uh, little program that we do every year at the state conference uh, to to inspire folks to get into research because it's not a four-letter word, it's not scary, everybody can do it. Um, And it really, that event changed the course of my life because I was doing my grad degree while I was finishing my prereqs for med school. So then I decided I wanted to be a data geek and I gave up med school to go for a PhD instead. (laughs) You joined the cool kids.
0: I did. The it's cool funny how our clips,
1: stories
0: really collide. I, I think I have Dave Page to blame for some of my research career as oh, well. No,
2: oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. No, no. Let's let, okay, this podcast is definitely going sideways here. I oh. think you're the rock stars who see a vision, and we're better because of your efforts in that kind of space of what can we learn And so I'm excited to talk about this, especially on Valentine's Day, because it's a little bit of love for our own mental health. And um, and both of you have gone in that direction, whether it's about burnout in in Remley's case and here, Ginny, you've done such an amazing job. I think everybody should know that uh, Ginny won best research in our PCRF uh, 2022 uh international scientific symposium and so that is uh awesome and and we have a call for abstracts out so the shameless plug that um these uh, accomplished researchers that are talking today all uh, want to welcome more new researchers so uh can't wait for what comes next but let's talk about stress <laughs>
0: Yeah, and speaking of stress, let's talk about, um, I believe this was part of your actual dissertation work. Is that correct? Um, Perhaps you could tell everyone a little bit about, you know, what it was like to pursue uh, your PhD and and to take this on as your topic. Why was this your
1: topic? I'm curious. That's a very personal question, whether you realize it or not. Um, But I believe in being candid and honest and and ending the mental health stigma. So I'm gonna answer it honestly. Um, I believe that the reason I selected this as my topic was to kind of understand where my own neuroses came from. Um, I grew up in an interesting home environment. Um, My parents love me, they are great parents, Um, but there was substance abuse in my family, I experienced a suicide at a young age, Um, there was depression in my family, and so And I was a latchkey kid, you know, in the nineties, you know, your parents, both of them worked and nobody came home until 7 PM. So you just had a key. And as long as you weren't dead or kidnapped, nobody really cared. Um, And so, you know, I started to wonder how that forms, what I do as a, as a clinician. Um, I, I started my own mental health journey several years ago, probably about five years ago. And as i started to learn things about myself i started to kind of understand how myself intersected with my role in ems and that it's very easy to blame the profession for what we see every day because everybody everybody on this podcast i'm sure has seen something that no human should ever have to see um but i feel like know blaming ems is kind of low-hanging fruit yes it is it is a huge problem um, and our culture is a problem and the lack of support is a problem but also who we are when we come into the profession may also prime us to be more susceptible to this sort of um, stress and so you know i I had a hard time you know in my profession and in my own mental health journey and i don't want that for others so you know as i continue to do my research it's i focus more on the origin story Um, i'm not really into like i will leave the you know interventional stuff to to other smarter people but i really want to understand every facet of what makes us susceptible to these things so that we can target mitigation strategies that are really effective for people who are the most at risk. That's such a powerful story.
0: And, and thank you for sharing your personal experience and helping keep this research real. And I would say, you know, you're not alone. There's lots of us who are benefiting from this kind of work and it's, it's so important. And so this is part of a much larger project. For those of you who don't know, the stress project has a lot of different arms. Um, today, we're gonna be specifically focusing on the compassion fatigue section of this. And so could you set up for us just a little bit about, you know, we we hear compassion fatigue and we kind of get an idea in our minds of what it means. But I'd like to hear your definition of it and and what helps differentiate it from these other conditions that we hear a lot about, things like burnout or PTSD or anxiety.
1: Um, Well, uh, you know, there's several different stress disorders. I think it's very easy to focus on. Um, I'm going to start calling it PTSI. That's kind of a new movement to call it an injury um, because it is a psychological injury the same way um, that if you get out of the back of the ambulance and smack your head on the Nader pin and (laughs) need stitches, it's a physical injury. Um, This is a psychological one. Um, But it's very easy to focus on that because everybody knows about it. We've been talking about PTSI or shell shock or Mm -hmm. combat fatigue or whatever for hundreds of years. Um, but there are more subtle, more insidious disorders um, now defined in the DSM-5 as trauma or stress-related disorders that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that if we can kind of parse those out first, you know, maybe we can keep people from developing into folks like me who have complex PTSI, and that's something that I will be dealing with my entire life. Um, and I, you know, like I said, I don't want that for other people um, there's two types of stress disorders, right? There's primary; those are like the PTSDs. Um, vicarious trauma is a primary stress disorder. It's it's it can be acute. You know, you only need to see one really bad thing, and then you kind of break a little. Um, with compassion fatigue, it is a um, it is a slower, more accumulative stress disorder uh, in which. You are constantly stimulated by, um, you know, stressful events or critical incidents or whatever, and you just, your body eventually loses the ability to cope properly with those events. Um, I think the best, easiest example of that right now is if you've ever been on, if you've been on TikTok for more than five minutes, you've seen a healthcare provider complaining about all the people who aren't getting vaccinated, who are in the hospitals, um, and they whine about having to treat them. And that that right there is compassion fatigue. You know, they they're kind of at war with themselves. They want to, they want to be the caring, compassionate provider that they've always been, but they're struggling internally because they are frustrated by this particular thing that keeps happening over and over again that they have no control of and can't do anything about. Um, and eventually it takes its toll on them psychologically.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's so key to understand this phenomenon and how it's certainly related to other stress disorders. We see some of those links in the paper that we're going to be reviewing, Um, but it is an important differentiation to talk about some of these things Um, now. I'm going to talk a little bit about the objective of our study here. So this was to identify the prevalence of compassion fatigue. It hasn't been well understood or well described and then to look for associated factors. And before we dive into the exciting results that you have, I'm going to invite Dr. Fernandez back to join us. And we're going to talk a little bit about the methods because I, I for one, am a survey methods geek, and I am really excited to hear about some of those things that you took on. So, Dr. Fernandez, the floor is yours.
3: All right, Ginny. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And It is. Uh, I just want to say congratulations on your great work and a um, wonderful dissertation and set of studies. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this one today. So um, let's dive in. So you you did you had a cross sectional survey um, survey design, and the one thing that I do want to note was your data collection started in March 2019 um there were some interesting things going on uh in in the following year so i i just like to talk about you had a really interesting plan for identifying not only agencies um but then getting your study population within your agency so i'd love it if you could walk us through kind of how you uh, you went through those uh, identifying those agencies how you selected them for participation in your research um and then kind of step us down to how did you actually get to the providers uh, who answered your survey?
1: Sure. Um, so my survey was pretty long. It was it was EMS long, it was not psychological long. Um, it was 105 items, which is EMS long, um, but a psychological long study would be like three to 500 items. Um, But it's hard to answer 100 questions in a row, especially if you're sitting at a computer. So I really wanted to do those surveys in person, which meant that I kind of had to stay within the confines of my home state, which is North Carolina. But North Carolina is very interesting in that it has pretty much every geographical region you could think of. We have mountains, we have coastal Piedmont, we have tidewater, we have sandhills, we have... uh, I guess the low country, which is like the mountainous area before you get into the flat part. Um, So we have all of that. We have large urban areas like Charlotte and Raleigh and Durham, and we have, you know, really, really small um, rural areas and, you know, hyper rural areas and everything in between. Um, And so I wanted to make sure that my study was as what we call generalizable as possible, right? So that uh, what that means is that we're trying to make sure that I'm not just pigeonholing myself by serving one little tiny group of people, and then it, you know, great, my results say this, but it means nothing in the larger scheme of things. Um, so we we approached 12 agencies that were in each, um, there were four each, rural, urban, and suburban that we asked so that we could get that gamut, because I think it's very easy to say well, of course, urban paramedics have more stress disorders. They run more calls. They're busier. they don't get time to pee or eat or whatever. Um, and so I didn't want to pigeonhole myself there. And then each of those agencies represented a different geographic area so that we can make sure that, you know, we, we included folks from the mountains all the way to the coast. Um, And then I started in March of 19, and I physically went to all nine of those agencies, every con ed session they had for a month. And I drug this little, I felt like a kindergarten teacher, right? I was dragging this little briefcase thing behind me with a lock on it that had all the surveys in it. Um, And then I hand scored and coded every single one of them. Um, So my my data collection took me about three months, um, because I would do two agencies a month, roughly two to three. Because um, some agencies have, you know, four or five con ed nights, so you got to get to all of them. Um, and then, you know, the summer I spent, you know, doing a lot of computer stuff in Excel, we became very close. Yes,
3: I think we all have a, a special relationship with Excel at this point. Um, so let, let's talk about uh, your your survey, your your survey. Uh, I see uh, Dave Page just popped in.
2: Yeah, Dave Giff- no, I, I just wanted to interject because, um, you know, novice researchers out there sometimes are uh, wondering about sending out a survey and uh, and talking about exactly which audience you're going to send it to and, and what kind of return rate you're going to get and whether you're just going to go on to Facebook and ask two questions or go on to SurveyMonkey and create an account and then suddenly get 1,000. Uh, is really important. And so I, I actually love this approach because what you did was, let's make sure we, we deal with rural urban, but let's make sure we get a really good return rate. And I'm just gonna go there physically and get these things filled out. And I think with sometimes we forget, it's easy to create an electronic survey and then, and then figure it out later. Uh, and then you really don't have a representative sample. And I, I really want to applaud you for just putting in that that seat time, windshield time, driving to these places uh, because it it really gives us a, a much stronger study, I think. So Tony can probably correct that, but you know, I just wanted to say that.
3: I would never correct the great day of Paige. Um So let's uh, let's talk about your survey. So you mentioned earlier that it was uh, relatively speaking a longer survey. Um, and it was composed of, of a couple of different surveys. And what I really like is that you didn't so much try and reinvent the wheel; use some 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 validated scales and surveys. And I, I think that was really smart. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what you chose to put in your survey and um, and and how how those fit together?
1: Sure. Um, so the first twenty questions or so were demographic stuff. You know, income. Do you have kids in the home? Um, what's your combined annual income? Um, you know, how old are you? What color are you? Um, what's your highest education? I wanted to know sexual orientation. Um, we asked about gender and not sex. Um, unfortunately, uh, I, I didn't have occasion to run across too many transgender EMS providers. I think there were, you know, a handful in the study. Um, so we couldn't use those results. And then um, after that, there was uh, four or five questions on military history, uh, because one of the projects was to tease out the impact of prior military service in EMS, uh, which uh, was published in JSOM a few months before, uh, which is the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, a few months before this one got published. Um, And then there was the ACES questionnaire. So that is a 10 question, yes, no, on 10 different types of child abuse or adversity in childhood as as it's probably better, I should have called it that, which is uh, physical, uh, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, uh, divorce, um, substance abuse in the home, mental illness in the home, suicide, or uh, an incarcerated family member, or domestic violence. So those are the 10 categories. Did you experience any of that in childhood? Yes, no following that. And ACES is, I mean, there's been, you know, probably a gajillion studies on the ACES. Um, Everybody uses it. So it's well known to be a stable instrument. Um, And that's, you know, I had so many moving parts in this thing that that was the one thing that I was like, all right, I I don't want anybody to question the instrument. Let's just make sure that that's not questionable. And then we can deal with all the other stuff. So after that was the life events checklist, which, is a 17 item kind of critical event scale also uh, used very often in uh, psychological research Um, that it's not only did you experience this but how did you experience it did you experience it directly did you witness it did you learn about it Um, or was it part of your job because that way we can tease out you know are these critical events really happening at work are happening in other places? Are we learning about them? Or are we experiencing them correctly? Um, following that was the professional quality of life scale, which, we'll, which we used for this study to quantify compassion fatigue. Um, and there's a cut score for that. So you're able to just kind of stick everything below that number and say, no, they don't and everything above this number and say, yes, they do. And then the last one was the impact of event scale revised, which will give you vicarious trauma um and i should back up and say that uh one of the other subscales for the ProQL will also give you burnout which is a project that i'm currently working on right now
2: yeah
3: so, so lots of stuff. Yeah, but yeah a whole lot of stuff jeff please jump in
4: thank you don't mean to interrupt you there but um just wanted to bring up something that you did i mean first of all amazing research and definitely an honor To be on here with you, but what I really liked about this research is you viewed all of the participants, not just as subjects and you're just trying to collect data and you're in and you're out, but what I thought was really interesting was. um, You described about your resources, I mean this is really difficult. um, Questions that you are asking very highly sensitive nature. Um, ACES I mean talk about difficult subject matter, and you realize that this is something that there are many folks in the EMS community who unfortunately suffer from many of these issues, and you tried your best to provide resources And what I thought was really interesting. Yes, sometimes, you know, folks will leave an 800 number, but you actually um, made a connection with the local counselor. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about that, since I think that's amazing, how. You really put so much effort into not just that research itself but you know other aspects of it in your your participants thank you
1: sure thank you for your kind comments jeff that you know you're gonna make me blush um yeah so i think that uh if it were me and i were taking this survey and somebody gave me the number to the suicide hotline i would ball that up and throw it in the trash. Um, but there was a lot of very sensitive material, not just all the ACEs stuff, but there were questions on, you know, whether or not the participant had ever experienced uh, the suicide of an EMS professional, whether they had thought about it themselves, um, you know, whether they had ever been in counseling for a stress-related event. So a lot of things that could really trigger and stimulate them. So I developed a of a resource sheet that was at the end of the survey that I encouraged them to tear off, which kind of had all the numbers, all the hotlines, based on, um, you know, like there was a veteran hotline, the suicide hotline, there was a a, like a fire rescue network hotline, Um, but then also I'm gonna give a shout out to Helen Tripp, she's a licensed professional counseling associate, um, who teaches a lot of CISM classes all around North Carolina, and she is a she's still on the truck actually. She's probably a, at this point a 35-year paramedic. Um, wonderful, wonderful woman. And so I asked her, you know, would it be okay if I put your contact information on that resource sheet so that there was a local resource that folks could reach out to if they, you know, got triggered by this or really wanted to experience counseling. Um, the first therapist I ever went to uh, was we had to spend like 30 minutes of the first session with him going, really? That's what, that's what you do every day. Really? Well, tell me about, you know, like, I just can't believe that. That's insane. And, um, and then, you know, the last five minutes was, well, give yourself a hug and tell yourself that you love yourself. I'm not kidding. Um, So I I just kind of went, "Bunk this. I'm not, going back. And that's a lot of the first experiences for many of us. I really wanted folks who needed it to have access to somebody who understood what they experienced on the daily. So they didn't have to rehash the worst memory of their lives while somebody looked at them like they were a TV show. Um, And that was very important for me in, in my therapy journey. Thank God I found somebody who was a, he was an ex special forces chaplain of all things um turned therapist and he didn't let me get away with anything because he he knew everything about <laughs> what what i was exposed to so that was more helpful for me and more comfortable too
3: And you know i really want to kind of expand on something that uh dave page mentioned earlier you actually went to these uh agencies and administered this survey which is a sensitive topic um in person and that 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 takes a, di- a different uh much different skill set than administering a survey online and I'd imagine that some sometimes this wasn't very well received and I I wonder if you can walk us through kind of some of the things that that you encountered when you were trying to administer the survey to a, a population like like ours
1: sure um I you know I spent an inordinate amount of time making sure that I use the word anonymous as much as possible. You know, I wanted folks to know that, um, you know, not don't, don't put your name on it. You know, I just don't wanna know who you are. Um, and I would make a, a big point of, you know, I had, I had gotten some agency data from their training officers um, about calls that the agency had run the preceding year because I was trying to look at what those numbers were in, in each area. Um, And so I would give them the corresponding number for their agency and say, write that on the front of your sheet where it says agency number. That's it. You're, you're tied to your agency, but beyond that, I have no idea who you are. And I made a huge point of like having this random folder in my little lockbox and I would just shove their stuff in it really without looking at it. Um, So that I think helped, you know, there was a visual cue. There was an auditory cue. Um, A lot of people came up and thanked me and said that, you know, they felt like this was important work and um, they were glad somebody was finally looking at it. And then I had those folks who um, would have what I, you know, can only describe as a really hyper aggressive response, like tearing the survey in half, throwing it up in the air, cussing while they left the room. Um, And ironically, those are the folks who probably should have taken it because that Over overly aggressive response is actually a symptom. Um, But there's a there's a phenomenon in psychology called a which essentially is your lack of awareness, your lack of self-awareness of your own mental illness or moral injury. Um, And it, it was that way for me. I thought I was fine. You know, everybody else was crazy and you know me snapping at everybody on the daily was just normal behavior, and um, and it wasn't until I really started understanding what this was all about that I realized that I totally had all this stuff and I just was oblivious to it. Um, and so I think for some of those that had this really aggressive response, that's probably where they are too. Um, but you know, you can't change anyone. And if they want to change they're going to have to take that step themselves unfortunately
3: absolutely um so let's move in we've I, i i uh sometimes like to expand on the methods a little bit too much and hold us from back from the really interesting results um but i'd be remiss if i did not uh talk a little bit about your your analysis plan and um kind of how did if you can at a high level Tell us, uh, how did you use these data to not only identify the proportion of the population who suffered from compassion fatigue, but how did you identify the predictors as well?
1: Um, So I think we know that there's very, very little research in this area in EMS. Um, And part of the reason why I'm so thrilled that I got to do this in North Carolina is that I didn't have really the influence of dual service. Now, I figured out if they worked in fire part-time, but North Carolina is a third service state, so I really got to look at the EMS-only experience, and that was super important to me because I don't, you know, I've, I spent some time on a SWAT team, and I worked for a fire department, but I drove the boo-boo bus for them. You know, I didn't put the wet stuff on the red stuff. Um, so I really wanted to get that experience, and, and because there was so limited information out there, I, I, you can't build a, uh, a predictor model when there isn't one to go off of really. Um, so the only way to do that is to try to figure out where the associations are, and then put those positive associations in a model and see how it all shakes out in the end. Um, and so that's essentially you know, what I did. Um, so lots of chi-square and t-tests and ANOVA's to just get the basic, is there a relationship here, yes or no, okay, well, when you look at those two things in a vacuum, yes, there's a relationship, but now when you add in everything else, is it still significant? And so those positive, significant relationships were used to build the final model. And then we check to make sure that model was predictive by doing what's called an, an area under the curve of the receiver operating characteristic to see how predictive the model actually was for this population. Because it's, you know, it's one thing if you get odds ratios that say, hey, if you're, um, you know, if you make $20,000 a year, you're 86 times more likely to have compassion fatigue, but it's only predictive in 8% of the population. So, you know, you know, that's worthless.
3: Yeah, Absolutely um so i can't wait to start discussing your results um before i do i'd like to turn it over to any other panelists who might have any methods related questions um and yeah and then let's let's talk about what you found
0: thanks tony um i don't have any further questions on the methods but i do want to one more time commend the methodology on this because uh, Dave Page kind of mentioned it earlier, but survey methodology is one of those things that's deceivingly challenging and you did a great job at making sure there was content and face validity in the items and your sampling strategy was really important. So a lot of times we see convenient samples, which can be okay for exploring some things, but this is a much stronger way of seeing if these effects are likely going to generalize outside of the study population. Um, and a uh, participation rate of 86% is just unheard of in today's survey world. When I was at National Registry, you know, we're getting in the teens, and if we're lucky, 20%. If we offered all kinds of incentives, and so the the time and effort that you put in really paid dividends. Um, and very grateful for that work.
2: And it's and it's reproducible, right? Because right. Um, if I'm thinking, is this really happening just in North Carolina? Then You know maybe uh i just kind of leave it aside and i can't i can't quite do it again in my local area so one of the beauties of this uh, kind of recipe is that these methods can really you know you could take them and, and reproduce them very easily particularly if you're a qi person at an ambulance service who says you know maybe we should actually see if our reality is similar to this and, and of course, a multi-institutional study where we've got different parts of different people in different parts of the country. You could survey 10,000 uh, EMTs and paramedics on, on Facebook, but do you really know that out of 400,000 or a million, these are representative? And, and I, I, can't, I, I can't overstate what Remley just said. We can come up with all sorts of questions that are completely untried, untrue, and, and invalid really, So uh, the fact that you took scales that were already in existence is just really useful. So, uh, you know, well done, well done
0: yeah and by going out to the stations and getting everyone to participate you reduce that risk that only the really strongly opinionated people will answer because if you're posting a survey on facebook about burnout well you're gonna get people who are really into that topic one way or another whether it's all the way on. um so i think that this is you know a, a very balanced look and i i think that's great
2: and for people who are intending to publish their work if you get you know very low return rates, you're not likely to publish in a in a good journal, in a journal that has a, a lot of readership or or prestige. So this was this is actually a really tightly controlled experiment that has consequences later. And again, if you're at a con ed session where all uh, like where I work, all of us do a mandatory ed. So, once a quarter, we could survey our paramedics about all sorts of things and get 100% re, uh, return rate other than just opting out uh, for research purposes. So, uh, really like the way that, that, that,
1: that you did that.
0: Absolutely. So, consult a survey methodologist like a Ginny if you're going to be doing these types of work.
1: Um, you guys, let's not to stop complimenting me, or I'm not going to be able to fit through the door when I leave.
0: So let's talk about the actual results here. We've got 686 EMS professionals across the state participated at the participating agencies. Um, And the first thing that really, you know, called out to me is that when you're looking for these things associated with compassion fatigue, it was broken down in certain areas. But First, perhaps it makes sense to talk about the proportion of providers that were found to be experiencing compassion fatigue, again, by a noted cut point, a validated cut point on that scale. And I, I was shocked to read 48%, and I'll be the first one who sits around and says, you know, there's no medals in the burnout Olympics, like you're not, you know, EMS is more burned out or less burned out. But I am curious, was that finding surprising to you, or is it in line with what you may have expected given your literature review on this topic?
1: Well, there is no literature really on on EMS for sure, but um, I was depressingly surprised if that makes sense. Um, You know, as a statistician, you get excited when you see numbers like that. Um, But when you put those numbers in context, um, it was was so awful uh, to know that, you know, nearly half of our, half of the people that I surveyed are suffering in one way or another. So, you know, there were things that I looked at and I was like, wow, this is really good data. And then I would go, wow, this is, I might have to go home and cry into my lucky charms tonight because this is just awful. Um, So I kind of had that dual response in all of it, really.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I had some of that just on reading it. It also goes to say that, you know, for people who may be experiencing some of these signs and symptoms, you're not alone in the slightest. Uh, there's this is a widespread issue throughout the profession. Uh, and the next part of this study really starts to break it down into some of these risk factors or associations uh, with who may be more likely to be experiencing these signs and symptoms and might be areas where we can target interventions in a future. Um, so when we go into the sociodemographics, demographics I thought there were some interesting findings there. Would you talk a little bit about what you found in terms of Race and minority race in ethnicity uh, in the profession with regards to compassion fatigue.
1: Yes, I would love to. Um, so, in African Americans, the the uh, prevalence of compassion fatigue was almost double um, than in those without, and in those with two or more who identified sorry as two or more races, um, that was more than quadruple. I think. Um, saying that right Um, and so this this actually led me down a whole different rabbit hole um, because then I got to thinking well how much of this is about EMS and how much of this is about being black in America Um, what what aspect does historical trauma play into the experience of of our minority EMS providers Um, I am a white passing minority. Um, And so it's very easy for people to assume that I am white, but I identify in the two or more races category, I'm only half white, which I think is why I pass so well. Um, But, you know, there certainly is historical trauma in my background and generational trauma that literally gets passed down to the point where it is a genetic marker for certain families. Um, And so that's something that I'm gonna look at in the future is kind of teasing out that difference. Um, In in different stress uh, disorders, um, American Indians, Native Americans or indigenous persons, I hate the word Indian, but that's the federal, you know, definition. Um, So indigenous persons were way more likely to have certain other stress disorders. So I really want to look at that uh, historical trauma aspect in, in that particular population. So kind of replicating this, but going around the country to uh, tribal EMS services mm-hmm. and, and seeing if, if I, the results I, are similar. Well,
0: and that's such important work there. And I think um, I like how you brought in the complexity of this, that it's not we like to have this binary thinking, right? Oh, it's got to be this one cause. It's got to be this one thing. Uh, and that's not likely to be true in something like compassion fatigue, that it's multifactorial and it's complex. And I like how you have started to explore some of those. And another thought I had is that, you know, we're starting to build a body of evidence in these topics and in what it's like to be a minority race or ethnicity in the field of EMS. And there's some excellent qualitative work that I think complements your study very nicely um, from Emily Hutchinson around interview qualitative interviews on what is it like to be black in EMS and what are those experiences um so I think this is you you kind of hit the nail on the head this is the beginning of much more future work to dig in but there's definitely a signal here of something that warrants further looking into
1: absolutely
0: In in the next profile, you talk about employment, and this is the one that would come to our minds, first of all, and and some of this showed up in my burnout work around, you know, what are the factors related to EMS employment that are associated with compassion fatigue? And so you talk about years of experience and shift lengths and types of call, and are are there any points that you want to call out for the audience from that employment aspect?
1: Um, So I think there are some there's some low hanging fruit in here um if if you have one to five years of ems field experience it's not likely at all that you're going to have so if you're zero to five years old in ems it's very unlikely that you'll have compassion fatigue but once you hit six years going all the way to 20 years you know that's when it really starts to skyrocket and that makes sense right because it's a it's an accumulative stress mm-hmm. disorder. So it's going to take time to build. And when you're zero to five, you're still a parapup, right? And you're uh, trying to figure out the profession and you're still excited. And um, you know, you haven't been jaded as what, you know, the healthcare providers would say. Um, there's a 10% increase in EMS personnel with compassion fatigue who work in EMS full-time as opposed to those who do not. And In the compassion fatigue group, shift length was one an average of 1.3 hours longer. So um, the longer you spend on the truck, comparative, uh, or compared to, you know, those who have shorter shifts. Um, And I think that will tie in nicely at some point to Daniel Patterson's work, um, because Daniel really looks at shift length and sleep and safety and and those sorts of things and. Um, there's a huge relationship between stress disorders and sleep and stress disorders and circadian rhythm fatigue. So that's a whole other rabbit hole that I'm going to go down uh, hopefully very soon as well. Absolutely. But in terms of, let me, let me back up to you in terms of the, cause I don't think we've made it to that chart yet, but in terms of the resources that are available to providers, you know, do they have EAP? Do they have Uh, chaplains, do they have access to CISD, those sorts of things. None of that stuff was significant, which means everybody knows that that stuff is available to them. It's not a lack of available resources. So in other words, it's not the agencies not providing resources that is the problem. Um, I think agencies are dumping resources on people. um, And there may be some analysis paralysis because there's so much there to choose from. Um and that's also because everybody knows we have a problem, but we really don't know how to fix it. So we're just gonna throw it's like shotgun medicine. We're just gonna throw everything at it until something right. sticks to the wall. And I think but, you know, I think it's, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I just think it's important to make that point because I think it would be easy for us to blame our employers. And yep. I, I really think they're trying to create resources for for field personnel
0: and i think this is this is a question i had uh, thought of for us later but you know this idea of should we be addressing organizational level factors individual level actions or a combination of both um part of my frustration in the burnout work was that all of these interventions seem to be focused on the individual like you should go do some yoga you should go eat right you should sleep right you should have work-life balance um, but all of that is just pointing at the person who's experiencing the condition um when this, your work points at, there's probably areas where it's kind of a both-and situation. There are individual Mm -hmm. things we can be doing and organizational level things. Um, Do you have any thoughts about some of these things that we should be targeting as organizations in particular?
1: Well, ending the mental health stigma is important. Um, You know, we've got to get out of this cultural mindset that You know, there's no crying in EMS, and you're not allowed to have feelings. And you know, if you seek help for any problem that you may be experiencing, then you're just a baby. Um, That's just insane. It's insane. Um, Our 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 tactical operators that go overseas and defend our freedom, they they take advantage of resources. Their culture is changing. There's way more of them than there are of us. We can change our culture too and make it okay and promote self-care and promote quality mental health. Um, I I think we're gonna see that flip-flopping shifts is gonna end up being a bad thing for stress disorders. Although I don't, there's no research on that yet. That's something that I hope to do in the future um, because it will affect your circadian rhythms um, to the point where you have too much cortisol in your system and you get adrenal fatigue. Um, and that's just going to contribute to the worsening of all of that. And then I think in EMS, we struggle a lot with lateral violence and I haven't seen any research on that in EMS. Um, so that's on my list of to do's too. You see, I got a long list. You just keep sales. giving yourself more work and I love it. I know. <laughs> and I career love career. it. It's so much fun. Um, cause every time I do something, I'm like, oh, and we could ask this and we could ask this and what about this? Um, so lateral violence is, it's very common in nursing, um, and it surrounds this idea of, you don't have control over a major portion of your work life in an EMS. That's kind of what we see, or maybe our shift. Um, and so the way that you reestablish control is you bully someone else, um, and, and create this hazing effect that Mm -hmm. happens in ems um you know we always say we eat our own young that's where that i think is coming from and that needs to be quantified too and that is an organizational problem that is not it stems from individual trauma but that is something that happens at the organizational level because it's allowed to so nobody knows that that needs to be fixed until it's called out so that research has to be done too such a great point jeff
4: sorry to add to the more whatabouts, but uh something else again in your terrific work that you brought up was gallows humor um which i don't think you've discussed just yet but we all know i mean it's our profession is such a difficult i mean we see so many difficult things and never know what you're going to see each day and um i thought it was really interesting how you brought in gallows humor and that we think it's effective and we think that, you know, it'll help us. So that's why it's so prevalent in EMS, but it's probably not necessarily a good thing. Um, So you don't mind just telling us a little bit more about it since maybe we don't all use that term, but um, it's definitely out there and uh, I'm curious what, what about it? Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Um, So, when something happens that's just cuckoo for cocoa puffs right Your and your brain kind of short circuits and says i don't know how to process this in a healthy way the way gallows humor fits in so it's good and it's bad because it will help folks process the event because in essence it's a form of storytelling and so by telling the story to someone else you're starting to process that event But where it's bad is that you continue to dissociate from the event in an emotional way. And then that kind of keeps you from healthy processing. Um, So it's kind of a twofold issue um, that it is both good and bad. You know, you you may need to externally process what you've seen in the form of storytelling, um, but everybody knows if you wanna keep somebody's interest, it's gotta be an engaging, funny story. Um, so we kind of inject that callousness in there that, that separates us from the emotion of it. And that, that results in that unhealthy mechanism. Right.
0: It's interesting how the symptoms and the coping mechanisms tend to blend with some of these, um, stress Mm -hmm. disorders. And so I would be remiss if I encourage the audience to participate and then don't take their questions. So I'm going to dive into some All of right. the audience questions. You're getting a no, lot of kudos that. and accolades in in there. If, if you would like us to also grow your head some more, um, but one of the one of the questions relates to this concept of moral injury. And so compassion fatigue, burnout, often begin with this concept of moral injury. Um, and so, do you think it would be, you know, beneficial if we manage the scenarios? Uh, to prevent moral injury, would we have better earlier interventions for some of these stress disorders?
1: So I just had a conversation about this the other day and yes is the short answer But you know, I'm not just gonna give you a short answer really um, Please don't. I, I think there's the, an appropriate way to do it and this is just my professional opinion um, you know having a frank open Raw, vulnerable discussion with folks, I think is an absolutely acceptable way um, to do this. not forcing people to engage if they don't want to. we've we've seen that with CISD that that is disastrous. Um, it, with the military, so I'm an army wife. Um, I've uh, my husband's been in the army for the last eighteen years. and some of the things that they do, in the military, I was just saying the military, so I'm not calling out the army, are just insane. They're just ridiculous. So they wanted to, uh, you know, when, when everybody was going overseas and it was, uh, you know, a lot of combat operations going on, they would desensitize soldiers by putting them in this miniature city and then moulaging soldiers and like blowing them up and, um, you know, simulating amputations, and screaming, and like, you know, simulating a war environment before they went to war with the goal of desensitizing them so that they don't get PTSD on the way back in, which to me, I kind of understand the concept, but the human factors part of me is, okay, so we traumatized them so that we could send them over to Iraq to traumatize them. (laughs) That doesn't, you know, it just didn't compute You know, there, and I think think it was just like, oh, this will be fun. You know, we'll do this giant simulation and it won't be boring and it won't be the classroom and hooray. Um, And I don't think that we thought beyond the implications of even simulated events can traumatize people. Right. um, And and affect them for the rest of their lives. So I think there are right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it.
0: Absolutely. Excellent points. And we have another question this time from Greg, and it's talking about the high turnover rate that we experience in EMS. So sometimes the data that we see are as important as the data that we don't see. Is it possible that there are a lot of people leaving the profession with compassion fatigue after serving just a few years of service and um, that the ones who are remaining are are the ones who are not experiencing compassion fatigue?
1: That is absolutely possible. Um, I think, probably what is more likely is that a primary stress disorder has occurred because uh, unless unless they were really at risk before they got in, I just don't see compassion fatigue setting in in a year or two. Um, but I do see the potential for you know, a vicarious trauma or a PTSI or a complex PTSI developing in that short amount of time that might drive folks into another profession and we're seeing it really a lot right now because of the way COVID was right. handled um, and the PPE shortages and, you know, people in all in all facets of healthcare are just fleeing the scene um, because they're exhausted and they're traumatized. And so, you know, I, I do think it's possible that there are people that could have been in this sample that weren't, um, but I don't know that compassion fatigue would be the cause. I won't say it isn't, but right. just based on the pathophysiology, I don't think it's likely. Makes
2: sense. I wanted to jump in. I, I uh, just because you and
0: Bill have to fight.
2: Yeah, we always do and that's okay. <laughs> but um uh but I always win. Uh so the the thing about vicarious trauma was uh, really interesting for me in Atlanta when you presented this at at the symposium was that uh, I didn't really understand vicarious trauma. And for those that are on the podcast or or listening to this after, I just wanted to make sure, uh, because that term is actually a real thing, not just like something you invented, you know, just uh, because, and um and since that day i've been thinking a lot about that that um, vicarious trauma and it has to do with kind of the effect that that witnessing or being part of something or hearing about something has on you and that concept that you know even though the 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 uh, assault that you you know the patient that was assaulted the assault wasn't perpetrated on you you have some emotion around. Gosh, I'm seeing this person who was assaulted. Whether it's a child, uh, a loved one, or a friend, or or even in at work, just the repeated exposure to these things, and and that micro trauma that keeps adding up, where you 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 start you start to go, yeah, I actually, kind of built up a defense against this, so that I could just keep c- coping with. I go to a lot of assaults. That happens every Friday night, Saturday night, I've, you know, all day long. So here we are uh, taking care of another person who's in a domestic uh, dispute. And so that's just the category in my head. And, uh, And sometimes you're able to just sort of kind of make these boxes, but this compassion fatigue piece, I think in particular, at least I'll speak personally, during COVID was really, it really, really got to me. I, you know, I was able to, I think, compartmentalize and still be very compassionate. Uh, But, you know, people that rip your mask off and cough at you, and, you know, I got to say, uh, that was just like, I'm done. I, you know, I, you know, sit on that stretcher and don't talk to me. So it's when it, you know, kind of became uh, a bit more of a, Uh, Ooh, I don't, I've never really experienced this level of I don't care what's going on with you. Uh, I just need to survive here. And I wonder if you can, you know, just speak a little bit about that in terms of that, um, that, that association between the vicarious trauma and the compassion fatigue.
1: Sure. Um, First of all, I'm sorry that you experienced that, Dave. you know, it's, I mean, really, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I, I think that, you know, and then you get this, Oh, I, I care way less than I used to. And now you feel guilty about so that now you've got this whole other like layer of, uh, self deprecation that you've added on, you know, now, now you're not just traumatized and exhausted, but you're blaming yourself for not being on your a game. And that's just awful for anyone. Um, I think it's very easy, you know. There I found some headlines uh when I was doing my research for this in in like actual newspapers that still exist. Um, you know, that a paramedic stops to buy sunglasses on the way to an emergency call, or a paramedic um gets suspended because he punches I have a pulled up over here on the on my other monitor, that a paramedic gets suspended for punching a patient or um you know, there was a big issue on I-95 in South Carolina where a mentally ill man was, um, who died because he wasn't treated. Um, and so I think it's very easy to go, well, those people never should have been in EMS to begin with, they're just terrible people, they were rogue employees, we just miss them on the way in. And that may be true, it's possible, right? But what's also possible is that they were so exhausted and so traumatized that they just snapped. Um, and in and, and that sense, if we are just calling them terrible employees, not only are we making it worse on their mental health, but we're not helping them either. Um, you know, the, the analogy I like to use for vicarious trauma is uh, a stillbirth. You go to a call as a paramedic, you deliver a baby who is stillborn, it's, you know, it's a death, you have to treat the mother, it's traumatizing. Uh, And then for the next month, every time you see a Pampers commercial, you burst into tears for no reason. You can't be around anything baby related. You don't want to see your nephews or nieces or your kids. Um, You experience that grief the same way the patient experiences it. It's emotional transference, uh, well, counter transference, really, because the patient's giving it to you. Um, it's seen a lot in therapists and clinicians and, you know, now EMS. Um, so you're carrying that grief on top of dealing with all this stress. Um, and so if you've got both things going on at the same time, um, that really can kind of drive you batty after a while. Absolutely.
0: Well, I think Dr. Toon seated his question. Yeah, Bill,
5: Bill just got scared.
0: <laughs> I was going to let one more go before I took yeah. this out.
5: Well, no, I think it, it is time for us to go. I know that. So I'll have to save mine for uh, another time. But it, at some point, I do think it's important we discuss or out there is is what would be effective mechanisms in EMS education programs to begin to work on uh, preparing people for the realism of the field. You know, a, a saying I've always said, don't become a firefighter if you don't expect to go inside a burning building. You know, same thing with uh, someone who joins the military. Don't join the military if you think you're never going to have to go to war. You know, you just shouldn't do things like that. Um, so I do think during our educational process, we probably can put in place some very valid things that will help us build resiliency or grit, whichever term that you'd like to use, within people so they can have a good career. So I'll leave at that. Thank you very much. Beautiful work. Wonderful to share. I could discuss for many hours with you. So
0: Absolutely. And Thank I hope you. this is the first of many discussions around this topic. Um, and so, Jeannie, I'll give you opportunity. Any last words that you would like our audience to leave with before I carry us out? The time has flown by today.
1: Yes, it has. Um, so I I just like to share a quote with you, uh, with you all, that I think is is very appropriate for um, what we what we've been talking about today in terms of where this stuff comes from, um, and that is, and I can't attribute this to any one person. I found it on the internet and it wasn't attributed to anybody, and so unfortunately I can't cite the author, but it's i didn't become an emt to get a front row seat to other people's tragedies i did it because the world was bleeding and so was i and somewhere inside i knew the only way to stop my own bleeding was to learn how to stop someone else's very powerful
0: thank you again for sharing your time with us this incredible research and for your candor and truly keeping people behind the numbers Um, I want to thank all of you listeners for your questions, and I hope that we can keep this conversation going and keep the stigma out. Um, But unfortunately, we have reached the end of our hour. Dave, do you have a last thing before we go? Oh, I saw him pop.
2: No, don't let him speak. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. Thank you. Great job.
0: Absolutely. Um, And for all of you who just can't get enough of research, as a reminder, we are going to be back here with the Education Research Journal Club on Friday, February 25th. And the Clinical Research Journal Club will be back the second Monday of the month, which would be March 14th. So thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Dr. Rinkowitz, and we look forward to talking about the
5: research next time.